Welcome to Mastering Money, the Educator's Edition, where we talk about the latest in financial literacy education. I'm Doretta Thompson, Financial Literacy Leader for Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada, where we provide no-cost programs and free online resources to help Canadians own their finances and learn the language of money. You can find our podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, and wherever else you find your podcasts. Please do subscribe, rate, and review us. And if you have any questions, you can reach us at financialliteracy at cpacanada.ca. Today, my guest is Gary Rabier, the founder and CEO of the Canadian Foundation for Economic Education. Gary's roots in financial literacy education are deep. He's been leading CFI since 1981. Gary is a nationally recognized leader in the financial literacy world and is particularly known for his work in the area of educating kids about money. He's developed school curriculum and created many inspiring resources, notably the Money and Youth Workbook, which now has over 500,000 copies in circulation, and the Talk to Our Kids About Money program that offers teachers and parents free tools and resources to help them have relevant, age-appropriate conversations about money. Gary, thanks so much for being with us today. It's a real pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. So you started CFI almost 40 years ago when there was nowhere near the focus on financial literacy that there is today. What inspired you to tackle financial literacy space? After a national survey that was undertaken at the time by actually four national organizations that included the Canadian Bankers Association, Life Insurance Association, Manufacturers Association, and uh, one other that I'm forgetting, um, they concluded that the quality and quantity of both economic and financial education in Canada was wanting and needed help. Uh, and so there had been a, a U.S. organization uh, somewhat similar to ours that had been established in New York some years ago and they decided it would be good to establish a foundation similarly to that that was not-for-profit, non-partisan, a charitable organization committed to impartial non-commercial education to give support particularly to the education system and beyond but certainly in our early stages the focus was on schools and education with the focus on Im- increasing and improving economic education financial education, and entrepreneurship education. So in some respects, ironically over time, it's become our acronym CFEE because we also added career development into that. So the four pillars are really career development, financial education, economic education, and entrepreneurship education. We feel those are the four pillars that help a person to build a successful economic and financial life. And so that's the focus of it, and we've been working at it. And finally, I think making some significant progress. You must have seen some huge changes over the length of time that you've been involved. Yeah, I mean, it's, everything goes through phases, and it's interesting the sequence of phasing that went through. Uh, back in the 80s, we went through a real growth period in entrepreneurship. We actually developed the first courses in Canada for the province of Ontario in the late 80s. But at the time, we were told, don't use the word entrepreneurship. People can't spell it, they can't pronounce it, don't use it, and whatever. We actually decided to bite the bullet and go with what it really was. And we laid down the, the first courses in Ontario. They subsequently spread all across the country. And entrepreneurship and enterprise education became commonplace in curriculum. Then, interestingly, in the 90s, career development became something. And so many people were involved in career education, career development programs, and whatever. And it went through a phase like that. And then late to the game came financial education. And I think it was as financial matters in people's lives became more complicated, as the 
telltale signs of financial stress and anxiety became more prevalent in people's lives. It became recognized that we had to do something because financial financial matters were becoming more complex. There were more decisions to be made. There were more products to pick from. There were more options to consider. And people were more prone to making decisions that weren't in their own best interests. And then the real killer came from 2008, when we hit the financial crisis. And uh, up until that point, we'd been making some moderate progress and whatever. Then 2008 really affected almost everybody. And I think at that point, the interest in financial education escalated dramatically. And since 2008, we've seen progressive growth and development in both interest and, and act- action in the schools and uh, also among parents. And I'd say the culminating thing has been recently where there's been the recognized correlation between financial health and well-being and mental health and well-being. And that's really been the capstone because as we made progress, parents and educators, oh, it's good to teach about money and finance and whatever, but when they started to recognize that we're really trying to lay down the basis for a young person living a healthy, happy life and being able to avoid stress and anxiety, that's when it really escalated and where the priority has been assigned by parents and schools to doing more. So it's sort of a history of how things have evolved in these different areas with financial education really escalating dramatically in recent times. So why is it really important to start with the kids? Because I'm sure you hear the same kinds of things that I hear all the time, which is, why don't they teach them this in school? And the kids are asking that too, because uh, quite honestly, we got sent a, a video by the uh, Halifax School Board a couple of years ago, uh, which they went to kids at graduation cap and gown and said, what do you wish you'd learned in school? And they sent it to us because unprompted, almost everything was about money. I, I wish I'd learned, I don't know anything about taxes, managing money or anything like that. So the young people really want it. It's really important because, um, as you may be aware, a lot of countries in the world are really talking about financial capability versus financial literacy. And the reason is for the, because of the fact that it's recognized that we're doing much more than trying to transfer knowledge. And often it's recognized transferring knowledge doesn't necessarily manifest itself in changed behavior. And what we really want as young people, as young people and as adults to act and behave differently, to have the skills to manage their financial life effectively. And behavioral development is a lot easier than behavior modification. And if you wait to high school and just beyond, there's a lot of behaviors that are already ingrained. And if you really want them to take on different kinds of behaviors in their own best interest to manage their money effectively, you're going to have to change some behaviors where if you start young and build it, you can actually get them acting and behaving ways that will help them understand that living within your means is important. Setting your own limits is important. Understanding the way people are going to try and influence your buying and borrowing decisions is important because there's going to be so many pressures on you to extend beyond that comfort zone, move into those areas of stress and anxiety, that we really have to empower our young people to be able to be in control and most importantly, stay in control because there's going to be a lot of pressure to go beyond it. So what do you think are the biggest issues facing youth today in Canada about money? I think the fact that they people know that even at a young age, people, uh, young people start influencing money decisions even if they aren't making the money decisions. They're influencing the decisions that mom and dad are making. And so therefore, they are increasingly being targeted uh, to develop um, what things they want to need, what things they want to buy and whatever. So as people and those who sell products and whatever target them more and more, 
we need to actually be in, and help enable them to protect themselves and understand things more. And in the old days, it wasn't, they were much more insulated from that and whatever, but now they're, they get it on the internet, they get it on TV, they're bombarded with products and ideas of the way things should be. Uh, and social media <clears throat> is a significantly compounding issue. So I think um, all said and done, the earlier we can start, the more we can do, the better prepared and feeling of empowerment that they can affect their lives is really something important to set our minds around. What do you think that in terms of talking with kids about money, what are some of the barriers that parents and teachers face? Parents often hesitate about doing it for a number of reasons. One, they often don't feel confident in their own knowledge. They never had, in many cases, the education themselves, so they aren't really sure about their own ability to do so. Second, they're not necessarily confident in what to talk about. Uh, third, they're often concerned that it's going to go into their personal uh, lives and open up questions about mom, dad, what do you earn, what does Uncle Harry earn, and things like that. Um, and so I think it's really a sense of self-confidence about what they know and about the where it might go. And so I think uh, our talk with our kids about money program that you mentioned earlier uh, is has a particular section targeted as a home program for parents, which puts parents not in the position of a child, a student, and a teacher, but puts them in a comfort zone that is a natural one. And I think parents' conversations with kids are best when they evolve out of a natural situation. So we have TV shows you can watch that can trigger conversations, movies to watch, crafts you can make, trips you can take, things that set up a natural situation for a conversation to begin. And what we find is that once parents start and they step over that one barrier, I guess it's a lot like the sex talk, once you open the door, uh, things just start to flow. And there's a natural curiosity in kids that they will ask. And the best thing to do is get them asking questions. And when we surveyed over 6,000 young people a couple of years ago, we asked them, where do you want to learn about money? And we gave them apps and games and internet, whatever. And far and away, home was the first place they picked and school was the second far ahead of anything else. So they're looking for trusted environments. They want help at home. They want help at school. And I think it's a challenge that a lot of people in the financial education world have to address is there's so many people that want young people to know stuff. And if you start that way, you end up directing information at kids. And the reality is if you don't have an engaged learner, you don't have a learner at all. And the challenge then is to get in the learner's mind. Where are you at? What do you want to learn about? How do you want to learn? And that's where you come down to things like simulation and participatory learning, which have been shown by research to be certainly the most impactful and lead to the highest level of retention. What do you think it is about money that has made it kind of the final taboo? So when you think about things that are difficult to talk about, it's usually personal things that uh, are in people's lives. So their love life, their sex life, their financial life, and whatever. So whenever you're hesitant about revealing it, uh, I think there's a caution there. I think the funny thing about money is that so many people experience difficulties. They experience stress, anxiety. Do they make right decisions? Do I make mistakes? And often they don't know that they don't want to necessarily reveal where they are because they feel maybe they're unique when they don't realize that the vast majority of the world is in exactly the same situation and would be you know, saying the same things you are. So I think there's a hesitancy about revealing because you feel, mm, I'm not as good as maybe people think I am or I've made mistakes people think I shouldn't have made and whatever. So I think whenever you get into that sort of personal reveal, that's when you have the hesitation. I think people are, money has become so symbolic and people are afraid of being judged. 
it's, it's that, that whole kind of judgment question around any mistake you might have made. Or I like to think about it in the sense of, you know, the economist's idea of friction, and that what a lot of the the you know marketers and bankers and financial institutions have done is removed all the friction from buying, so it becomes easier and easier to buy. And, um, and what you really want to do is get people to insert their own friction to prevent them from buying, exactly. but remove the friction to make it easier and easier for them to save. How easy, much easier it could be to walk up with a piece of plastic and tap it on top of a machine and bang, you walk out with what it is you've got. And, but you add that at the same time as we were talking with uh, another organization that was dealing with a young lady who's having, dealing with financial matters and informed them that she didn't pay interest on credit cards. And... The question, obviously, you don't pay interest on credit card? No, I pay exactly what they ask me to pay every month, right? And so when that's the level of understanding you've got about the process of credit, and the same time that little piece of plastic can tap on top of a machine and you've made your purchase, that is just setting the stage for trouble. I always think about when my daughter was really little going out shopping and she wanted to buy some more things. I said, no, mommy doesn't have any more money. And she said, well, let's just go to the machine and get some more. I mean, quite honestly, there... We work with the Bank of Canada, too, on doing a <clears throat> major project on money and monetary policy and whatever. And it's interesting how many Canadians don't understand why we can't simply turn on the printing presses and give everybody a whole bunch more money, and then everybody would be so much better off. You know, and there's, a, there's so many perceptions people have of the way the world is or could be versus what the realities are. So your book, um, Money and Youth, which is, is something that's been, you've been doing that for a number of years now. Can you tell us a little bit more about that book, how it's broken down and how parents use it with their children? We start right at the beginning with a consideration of your values and what you think is important in life. Then we actually move into decision making because interestingly a lot of young people have never actually been taught a process by which to make decisions. So we go through a whole exercise where you identify what's important to you, you identify options that are available to you, you do an evaluation between the options with your, what you value, you get the context by which you can make a decision. So you set the stage for moving up to dealing with money. Then we start off with getting money because a lot of financial education assumes you've got it. What are you going to do with it? We assume you need to get it. And so it has a whole section on looking for a job, about keys to finding where jobs are, questions about employers may ask you, resume writing. Also, are you an entrepreneur? So there's a whole section on exploring your own interest in entrepreneurship or being enterprising in what you do. Then once that's the case, we go on to the, the to spending money and going through the, the how to make good spending decisions. Then we go on to saving money. Then we go on to borrowing money. Then we go on to protecting money and investing at the same time. So we go through those different stages of managing money. So we really call it a, a guide to financial literacy. But throughout it, there are all kinds of embedded activities. There are reflective things on how does this affect you and the questions that challenge you to think about yourself. At the end of each section, there's a do you recall? And so you can even check, geez, did I actually really learn that or not? And then online, because there's an online version, Every single module has both a teacher's guide and a parent guide. So in what age do they start at? It tends to be used in the sort of grade 9 to 12 area. It's written at a level that honestly many adults will be very comfortable reading it. What, what are your feelings about starting with much younger children? Our program goes all the way down to about age 6, 7 with adults and whatever, but you can, uh, with parents and their kids, you can go certainly earlier than that because kids develop a sophistication or they can all, that's a lot of when the behavioral development starts. I'm sure you're aware of the Stanford University 
experiment they did with the marshmallow and the kids, and they put a marshmallow in front of these very young kids, I think they were age three or something like that, and told them if they left, they were going to leave the room. If they didn't eat it, when they came back, they would get a second marshmallow, but they could eat it if they wanted to. And so it was to see who was prepared for some deferred gratification, to wait later to get more and whatever, and they tracked those kids for years, and they found that the level of uh, their performance and education and their careers and whatever, for those who had this sense of the deferred gratification and how you can be better off if you wait. There was such a strong correlation of success with those kids that demonstrated those early behaviors. I am familiar with that that study, although there's been a, a lot of rethinking of that study. I don't know if you've seen the latest stuff. No. Yeah, where they're really questioning actually the results of it because there are environmental factors that have a, 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 that have a really major impact on whether a child will wait or not. It's mm-hmm. quite, it was quite interesting. Like if you have four brothers and sisters, and there's yeah. a marshmallow, you're going to eat your marshmallow because yeah. you know what the chances are that that marshmallow is still going to be there. So what kind of feedback have you had from parents and teachers and even from kids on some of your programs? Uh, it's been incredible. Um, we've had very positive feedback. I mean, it shows in the growth of it. Our, our talk with our kids about money program is in its uh, just at its sixth year now, and it's grown by 25, 30% each year to where we had about almost 8,000 schools participate last year. Uh, so I think the fact that it's grown is a demonstration of the response and the fact that we've had so much retention in users, the fact that so many people reorder our money in youth book for using uh, along the road. We actually do get evaluations on them, and the evaluations we get are really very positive. But uh, I think one of the interesting areas of feedback we got is when we did our youth survey, we left um, an open-ended question at the end. And as you may know from any work you've done with young people, for open-ended questions, you generally get no response, uh, humorous response, or profane response that you can't really use. This one, there were so many positive comments about this is what we need. We need more of this in school. This is what I need for my life skill. There were so many. There were in the thousands of those kind of comments. So really, on the one version we left online, we included them all just for people to see how strongly young people feel that this is something that's needed in their lives. I think you're right. Um, have you seen over the years since you've been doing this, what changes have you seen that, that over time that um, in reaching your audience and the accessibility of audiences in their responses, um, have you seen a lot of change or has, has the response been positive always? In the early stages, you were supply driving. You were trying to tell people this was important to do. Here's a resource we hope you will use. Uh, Here's a program that might be good to try. What shifted is it's becoming demand-driven, and there's more interest in doing it, more coming to us for resource, finding us that I'd want to participate in this program. Uh, We even have funding partners that are coming to us. You know, heck, as you well know, you've got to go out and find sponsors for the programs that you do, and we've always had to go out hunting for those. Well, now it's turned around where we actually have some coming to us and say, we'd like to work with you, we think this is important, whatever. So I'd say the biggest shift over time is, in those early stages, you were trying to convince people this was important, that there were things you could do and use, to where now people are recognizing, yes, it is important, and I want to find some things to use, and I, want to, and I do want to help my kids. And so I'd say that's the biggest shift I've seen, is that uh, we're having more from the other side come from interest than it is trying to create the interest in doing something. What data do you track as you're developing your programs? Is there anything in particular that you look for in assessing your programs and, you know, tweaking them, developing them year over year? 
Yeah, we in all the programs that we do, we seek uh, feedback from those who use them. We use evaluation forms. Uh, we get a lot of constructive feedback and suggestions in terms of what we can do. I think the biggest frustration for us and probably from those who support our work is that everybody wants to know the impact. Are you changing lives? Are you changing behavior and whatever? And quite honestly, I wish we could tell that. It's, um, it's in a very expensive proposition to be able to do that. You have to go through longitudinal studies, which particularly, particularly with young people in schools, you can't do because you can't readily track kids and students through the school system. So I would say it's very easy to get feedback on resources. You can get positive reinforcement. You can get suggestion on what to do. The ultimate goal we have and that our partners have is to affect lives and make things better for people down the road. It's the biggest challenge is to be able to get really valid information that that is happening. You can get it a before session and an after session, you know, and a pre and a post test, and we do that, and that's that's valuable feedback. But the reality is, is um, what we're doing is down the road, some years away, to really see the impact of it. And uh, there's a lot of faith involved. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm a real proponent of the fact that there are people who always want numbers to justify or measure what we're doing. I'm a believer that in some cases it just makes sense. And if you can see something that you may not be able to validate it with numbers, but come on, doesn't it just make sense? Uh, you've got to have some faith that your judgment is right in that regard and that down the road there will in fact be results showing from it. Because quite honestly, we'll never be able probably to effectively within any near short term give evidence of that. But um, there are some things that if you have from experience, your own knowledge of people, the knowledge of the world, that this is something we should be doing. It's like, quite honestly, you may challenge it, but doesn't financial education just make sense? The behavioral economists are, are doing very interesting work in measuring very specific interventions. But the big picture of better financial decision-making is, is, is a different thing, I think. And, and we know that education, financial education, is necessary. Is it going to be sufficient to, for, to implement behavior change or to ensure good outcomes? Maybe not sufficient, but it's sure necessary. It's got to be our starting point, I think. I really do believe it's within our capability to develop some kind of monitoring index that's an amalgamation of things we think are important that could be shown by behavioral change. You know, debt-to-income ratio is a thing we, we look at all the time and hear about. Well, is that declining over time? You know, are defaults on credit cards declining over time? Are balances on credit cards declining over time? I think we could probably identify 15 or so statistical indications that behavioral change is happening that I'd love to see amalgamated into some kind of behavioral index that over five years, 10 years, and whatever, we could see that we are making progress. And whether it's all attributable to financial education, we'll never know. But is it making a contribution? We'd have to assume so. But are we collectively, through whatever is being done, whoever's doing it and whatever, are we collectively having an impact to make things better? Can you um, tell us a little bit about your new partnership with the province of Manitoba? Yeah, we've been working with the province of Manitoba for many years now on a variety of things. They actually have distributed a copy of our Money and Youth book to every grade 10 student in the province. We've worked with them on the Building Futures project, which was integrating financial education into grade 4 to 10. Um, and our success with them, we actually 
As you know, there's a strong Francophone community uh, also in Manitoba. They actually have a separate Francophone curriculum. And so when we actually developed that program, we didn't do a translation. We went back to square one and redeveloped the whole program, working with the Francophone community to do a separate Francophone program. And we found that, uh, you know, the Francophone often gets frustrated by the fact that so many of the resources are simply translations and they don't pick up the subtleties, the nuances, the key things that are actually important for Francophone education. So we did that. So I, based on our success, the province decided it would be good to do further work with us. So in fact, we signed an MOU that we will be developing a high school course in financial education for the province of Manitoba. They will be working with us in terms of the use of our money and youth program on the Talk With Our Kids About Money program. We're also going to be doing some work for Manitoba seniors and running workshops for them on financial literacy capability. And we're also doing newcomer workshops as well. So it's a broad-based program to try and address different needs within the province of Manitoba with youth and newcomers, seniors, and whatever. And uh, so we're going to work with them in an agreement uh, to do that over the next three years. We tend to think of you with your, all your expertise with students, but what particular thing do you see with, uh, with newcomers, the challenges they face? Perhaps our most successful resource was our day planner for newcomers to Canada that we did a number of years ago. We distributed over 680,000 copies of those through about 800 immigrant serving agencies. So it was filled chock-a-block with little information about business in Canada, employment in Canada, finding a job, education, uh, visuals of sites in Canada, important dates in Canada, and and it was just this whole collection in a day planner type format that also provided all the basic information you needed for the Canadian citizenship exam. And so it was an extremely popular resource. And then we moved into doing workshops for newcomers to Canada. And uh, we actually did a series, even when we had the Syrian refugee period, we did some workshops adapted specifically to the needs of the Syrian refugees. And what we found over time is that newcomers arrive here with different levels of sophistication and need and interest. And so we actually offer workshops at three different levels. One we see as a basic level where they just have very limited information at all. They're looking for just basic banking information and things like that. Then there's a general information where they're above that. They're looking more into things they can do with their money and so forth. And then there's an advanced level where they're actually coming with money. They're looking to start businesses. They're looking for ways to invest and whatever. So we've actually structured the workshops to run over three different levels of capability that the immigrant serving agency that's helping us organize the workshop advises us in terms of the, the composition of the group we're addressing and what they believe the needs would best be for that particular group. And so we developed this great relationship with the immigrant serving agencies who become that trusted intermediary between the newcomers and ourselves that they wouldn't know and set the stage for us being able to run these workshops for them. But they, they are very, um, it's an inspiring session. I mean, uh, our Kevin Maynard, our vice president, who does a lot of these, uh, comes back so inspired and motivated from the workshops that he conducts by these people coming here to build new lives, anxious to learn, anxious to get. I mean, it would be. It's unfortunate that a lot of Canadians can't experience firsthand the attitudes of these people and the attitudes of Canadians that want to help them. I mean, it was fascinating when the Syrian refugees came here. The federal government had more groups of Canadians wanting to help them than they had Syrian refugees, you know, able to, and they were putting getting together as communities and raising money to help get kids in schools and things like this. It's an incredible story that's in the background that nobody's really told. And we have the opportunity on the front lines to see these individuals as they arrive in Canada, excited, motivated, concerned. Some of them come here, and this is one of the things we've identified, you have to be very sensitive to your audience. We had a session last year 
where uh, Kevin was leading the workshop and he uh, asked them to think about their first memory of money. But for somebody with PTSD who had come from a very difficult situation, triggering memory uh, is a very difficult and dangerous thing. And this person actually went into a situation where they actually had to call for medical assistance for this person just by being asked the question, you know, what's your first memory about money? And so the, you, the one thing that alerts you to is here's people from all over the world in all different situations coming to Canada with, for all different reasons to start a new life here. And so it's not as uniform, you know, as many of the workshops. You go into a, group, a workshop for a group of teachers or a group of seniors, there's certainly variation, but not the diversity. I mean, uh, we've done workshops with eight different translators working with eight different groups simultaneously going through the, the exercise. But um, they all are highly motivated to try and learn what they can to succeed here. So uh, you do come away feeling somewhat inspired. One of the things that we often encourage our volunteers who are delivering our, our programs, etc., is that we learn the most often from the mistakes we've made ourselves. And I've been asking people as we sit down together to talk about things to share some of their own mistakes and what they learned from them. Is there, is there a story you'd like to tell us about a financial mistake that you've made and what you learned from it? I could uh, certainly, uh, in terms of the work we do, I could think of uh, something we've learned along the way from, I, I'd have to think about personally right now, but, but on the work side of things, I think we have learned um, the lesson that we witnessed that trying to do too much, quantity over quality, is a mistake. Trying to make things too long, trying to cover too much, trying to say too much. People get engaged in bite-sized chunks of interest that are relevant to them. And so what we've learned is that it's much better to hit someone with a small amount in an engaging way and get them involved than here's a nice book, you know, covering everything you ever needed to know. And I would say that's one of the things we did in the early stages where we provided too much content rather than focusing on the learner and getting them engaged in what we do. That's a, a big thing I think we've learned along the way. Personally, I would say one of the things I didn't do was certainly save for my kids' education as what we should have done. And now, I didn't necessarily anticipate that my kids would run all over the world going to school. Uh, so that was maybe a compounding factor. But I, I definitely, we did not uh, save sufficiently for the costs we incurred in post-secondary education. Um, and the problem that a parent will find is that you want to give your kid the best opportunity you can. And some of those things cost money. And if you weren't prepared for the options and possibilities, uh, yeah, you take a hit uh, doing that. So it was a hit we were happy to make. It's been worthwhile in the end. But if I had my druthers, I would have started saving for my kids' education at a much earlier stage. So Gary, you've talked a lot about your resources. How can people get more information about CFI and the resources that you offer? Best way is to go to our website, which is uh, www, if people need to know that anymore, .cfi.org. And all of our resources and programs are listed there. Everything we do, for those who are interested, is in English and French, with the exception uh, we also do the classroom edition of The Globe. And so we select articles on a broad range of subject areas that are relevant to young people, reproduce them in the classroom edition that the Globe has given permission for teachers to replicate. And we do lesson plans for selected ones. Uh, and there's not a French language equivalent to that one. But all of our other programs are in English and in French. And they can see them all right there in one fell swoop on the website. And you can also link directly to the CFI webpage from our website at www.cpacanada.ca slash financial literacy podcast. This has been another episode of Mastering Money, the Educator's Edition. 
brought to you by Chartered Professional Accountants of Canada. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is financialliteracy at cpacanada.ca. You can subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes.